0: Precision Medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What do we have available today as patients, caregivers and healthcare providers? Are we seeing a difference in the healthcare system? What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. So hello, everyone. I'm your host, Martin Dawes. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Genexis Healthcare Systems, and we're really excited to welcome our guest for today's episode, Jared Organstein. Uh, Jared is the Director at MANAT Health, an interdisciplinary policy and business advisory practice of MANAT. He provides the project management policy analysis, startup business planning, and strategic business services to healthcare providers, startups, payers, pharmaceutical manufacturers, and other healthcare organizations. So quite a portfolio there. Jared's primary areas of focus are advising public and private sector clients on delivery system transformation, population health, digital health, international and global health, federal and state health policy trends, and provider markets. He has extensive experience assisting large healthcare systems, academic medical centers, and children's hospitals with strategic planning and implementation related to delivery system transformation. He also advises healthcare startups on business planning strategies. Before we dive in to the background, Jared, I'd just like to start with a question. If you had to explain to a seven-year-old what telemedicine is, how would you describe
1: it? Thanks, Martin, for having me, and thanks to the Precision Insights podcast for inviting me to join today. I think I would describe it as FaceTime with your doctor. I think probably most seven-year-olds know what FaceTime is from FaceTiming with their parents or grandparents or relatives, and I think that telemedicine is a technical term for something that people are really doing every day in, in their normal lives, and don't think of it in a sort of special way. It's just the way that people are used to communicating. And so I'd sort of keep it simple.
0: Excellent. Thank you.
1: In terms of
0: the healthcare landscape, would you give a little synopsis of what your company is doing and tell the listeners a little bit about the most exciting project you've worked on or are currently working on?
1: Sure. So Manette Health is an interdisciplinary consulting and law firm and we work across the entire healthcare system, the focus on the United States. We work with states on designing state health policy. We work with providers on delivery system transformation, with medtech and pharma and biotech companies on a range of policy and strategic issues with payers and with increasingly health tech and digital health companies. It's a really fun, interesting place to work because we get to work on a wide range of issues that are facing the healthcare system, of which there are myriad challenges in the United States, and we get to come in it from a range of different angles. So that's been really rewarding over the past few months as I've been doing a lot of work in the telehealth space. I've had the opportunity to work with big health systems that have been standing up telehealth programs rapidly in response to the COVID pandemic. At the same time, have had the opportunity to work with states on designing their temporary and permanent coverage policies of telehealth and their Medicaid programs, and determining what their coverage requirements are gonna be for commercial plans, and also working with health tech companies who have telehealth offerings as part of their, their product. It's been a really interesting few months One of the most interesting projects that I've been working on has been helping a state design its future telehealth policies in its state Medicaid program. And that's been particularly interesting for me because we've been doing a lot of work over the past few months tracking what states are covering and not covering related to telehealth. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, many states have expanded coverage of telehealth to make it easier for for patients to access their provider and because of the social distancing restrictions that have been in place. And so it's been fun to sort of be behind the curtain a bit and helping a state think through what its own coverage and reimbursement policies should be for telehealth during this unprecedented time.
0: It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, as a provider, it's one of the biggest changes that's happened in the last three months is this explosion in telehealth services. I noticed that you talk about that ease of access. And if you're working at the state level with a state delivered system, do you include in some of your models the reduction in indirect costs? Because if people are not having to take time out of work, drive to the doctor's office, park, disrupt family, et cetera, and then come home or come back to work. Do you think that the reduction in those indirect costs are starting to play into the healthcare systems
1: generally? It's a really interesting question. You know, I don't think that the formal reimbursement, most of the way that providers get reimbursed in the United States is through fee-for-service, providing fee-for-service care. Even if there are value-based payment arrangements at sort of a higher level, and that providers are participating in some sort of value-based payment program, at the end of the day, the vast majority of individual clinicians still get paid based on the the volume of care they provide. And in the fee-for-service system, there isn't really a good way to account for those indirect benefits that come from being able to save on commuting time, from not having to find parking, from not having to wait in the waiting room to see your provider. I think where we are seeing a lot of that start to get taken into account is employers have for a long time sort of been on the cutting edge of telehealth coverage and have seen the value of covering telehealth because of those benefits, those absenteeism and presenteeism benefits that particularly will accrue to a provider. And since most people in the United States get their health insurance through their employer, I think employers have been more generous in covering telehealth services if they're self-insured in, in their plans because they see that there are these indirect benefits in a way that I think are harder to account for in, in other parts of the payment system, for instance, like in state Medicaid programs or in Medicare.
0: It's interesting. We're obviously looking at it from a population health delivery system. And therefore, if you've got indirect cost savings, that's actually often a bigger factor than if you're altering tests, ordering, or prescribing costs. We do know that in preventative health, certainly those indirect costs are a major factor, perhaps not for the care of severely ill people, but further back along the line that you're trying to prevent disease, those indirect costs have a, a huge impact.
1: Yeah. And I think what we'll start to see more of is it's going to be interesting to see whether we move towards more population-based payment models. Mm -hmm. There was a shift towards population-based payment models leading up to January, February, March of this year when the pandemic hit. And I think now there's sort of two schools of thought on how that could evolve. There's one school of thought that says providers are not going to be willing to take a lot of new financial risk and introduce new financial uncertainty beyond the level of uncertainty that they already are experiencing because of the pandemic. And so are going to be hesitant to enter into new types of value-based payment arrangements. I think there's another school of thought that if you look at sort of how the health systems and providers that were in value-based payment arrangements performed during the pandemic, they generally fared better than their colleagues who were primarily paid on a fee-for-service basis because they had revenue coming in even when they weren't you know able to maintain the level of volume that they were used to because of social distancing restrictions. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds over the next few months and years. My hypothesis is that as we see a, a shift towards value-based payment, if that is how it sort of plays out, I think that it's easier to sort of provide a lot of these types of services, telemedicine, remote patient monitoring, digital therapeutics, other types of digital health services in value-based payment models, because we know that the benefits are there. It's just hard to sort of realize those benefits when you're paid on a fee-for-service model.
0: I think that one of the issues that we come across is how do you assess the value of the contributions in those sort of public health models? You can count visits, you can actually get a handle on how many times patients are seen with fee-for-service, but when you step back and you do a population approach, it starts to get a little bit more difficult to see, okay, this is what I'm getting for every dollar I'm spending.
1: Yeah. And I think for a long time, to your point, the evidence base around a lot of different digital health interventions was really limited. It's only really been over the past one, two, three years where we've seen a proliferation of really high quality randomized control trials that can show the financial and clinical value of a lot of these different types of interventions. Now, I think to get coverage from a major payer, it's sort of table stakes to have done a really high quality study that demonstrates the clinical effectiveness and the financial ROI of a digital intervention. Uh, and I think that's going to you know, even be more the case going forward. I think that you're
0: absolutely right. And I think that that is the current paradigm, is that we need evidence before we change our systems. But there is another argument, and I'd like to get your feedback on this, that every system is different. Every population is different. The ethnic mixes, the socio-demographics, the historical perspectives, the geography. And there's an argument being put out that actually we should be doing implementation evaluation for every single innovation, because you can't translate the big randomized controlled trials into the population that you're necessarily looking after. How would you react to that sort of uh, statement?
1: I agree with you philosophically, I think, and I wish that were the case. In my experience, talking to payers, talking to providers, providers are not willing to really change the way that they're delivering care unless they know that they're gonna get paid for it in most cases. And so I think there's sort of a chicken and egg problem where the providers would be very happy to sort of take that implementation science approach and say, let's try it and let's test it and let's continuously improve it, especially some of the more sophisticated academic health systems and medical centers that are used to that type of implementation research. I think at the same time, they're not willing to take the financial risk if it's unclear whether they're going to get paid for providing care in a different way. And I think payers aren't willing to pay for the experimentation, basically. They want to see the ROI before they're willing to pay for it. And maybe it calls for sort of a new type of partnership model where payers will agree to sort of fund the implementation science part of it and providers are willing to conduct that research in a new way. Under the current paradigm, it's I want what you're saying to be true, but... I've just seen too many examples of where the incentives aren't aligned. And so the research sort of gets stuck.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think that that's a realistic assessment. Part of the reason I ask that is that, you know, we've started with the telehealth adoption explosion, frankly. And we know that probably there's some areas of care that can become more challenging in a virtual environment. And I'd quite like to get your feel. And do you think that there are elements of clinical practice that, some organizations are saying that should never be virtual care or that should be virtual care in a different way. Do you come across that?
1: Yeah, and I think that the national conversation on this is sort of evolving because of the volume of telehealth visits over the past few months. I mean, we've gone from, just to put it into a little bit of context, in the Medicare program, we've gone from a weekly average of 11,000 telehealth visits to now a weekly average of more than 1.3 million telehealth visits. So over a hundred times increase. And in the commercial space, we've seen an 8,000% increase in commercial claims for telehealth from April of 2019 to April of 2020. I don't know if any type of healthcare delivery has ever increased at that rate in the history of healthcare delivery. I think that the increased volume is sort of forcing a lot of these issues. I think the areas that I'm sort of hearing where people are a little bit uncomfortable providing telehealth is more in diagnostic types of visits where the clinicians are being asked to make a diagnosis and they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable without being able to sort of put hands on the patient. And then the other type of visit, I think that we've seen some pushback around is on well-child visits pediatric, really young young kids, where there's, again, you want to be able to sort of have physical interaction, you want to be able to talk to caregiver, you know, parent caregiver, and you want to be able to have a more sort of intimate type of visit that's hard to do, frankly, via telemedicine. On the other hand, I think there's some types of telehealth where we've seen there was initially some skepticism, and the feedback has been wow, this isn't so bad, or even this is great, you know, better than in person. And I think that has been the case with a lot of behavioral health services, again, not all behavioral health services. But, you know, I've heard from many providers that they feel that by delivering telebehavioral healthcare, they get an insight into the patient and the patient's life and, and home and sort of, you know, social experience in a way that they don't get when the patient's coming into the office, and that that's been really valuable. And in some cases, patients are more willing to be more open and honest faster because they're more comfortable if they're receiving care from their home than they are if they're in an office where they sort of can feel uncomfortable at times. I think sort of sorting out what the right use cases are for telehealth and what the wrong use cases are for telehealth is something that still needs to happen. We need a lot more research into this area to really figure out and feel confident about each of those respective areas.
0: That's an interesting angle on it, and I hadn't really thought about looking at the patient's home doing the virtual visit, and that's absolutely true. And we used to talk about home visits, and you'll tell from my accent perhaps that I trained in the UK and worked there a lot, where home visits, where you would actually see the patient's environment, the, the socioeconomics, the geography, all those things I just mentioned earlier, writ large for you. Thinking now, as you were talking, if you're doing a virtual visit, and we often do say to patients, what medications are you taking? And they say, oh, I forgot to bring them in. And of course, in a virtual visit, they can just go off to the medicine cabinet and bring the medicine. So you actually may get glimpses of what's going on in a more comprehensive way with the virtual visit. And of course, you're then saving a second visit because they've just got that information or the drugs right available. So you're right, it's going to have elements that we hadn't really thought about as we move forward and definitely as research is needed in the area. Do you think when we're doing medication renewals that those can be done virtually now?
1: I think it's going to depend on the clinical use case. I think for sort of typical normal healthy patient, been on a medication for a long time, has a really good a relationship with the provider, long-standing relationship with the provider, They've been on the medication for a period of years. I could see that type of visit being done via telemedicine. I think a lot of that is done now. I think there's other types of visits, for instance, prescribing of controlled substances for patients with substance use disorders or a lot of sort of prescribing in the pediatric population, for instance, with patients with ADHD. I think there's going to be interest in having more in-person interaction Even if it's possible Mm. to sort of do a renewal via telemedicine, I think there's going to be interest in getting eyes on the patient and reassessing and making sure that the medication is working the way it's supposed to. And so I think it's probably going to be on a case-by-case basis, is my guess.
0: Yeah, that sounds likely. And as we move forward, do you think that this is going to be put back in the box? Or are we now, we've moved past that threshold and that telemedicine, telehealth, is now going to be a core part of the health system going forward?
1: I think it's going to be a part of the core health system. I feel pretty strongly that, you know, there. Seema Verma, who runs CMS, said, I think she was quoted as saying, the genie's out of the bottle on this one. So I feel that we're going to re-level to a new normal Before COVID, the reality is there was a lot of talk about telehealth, but if you actually looked at real patient volume, it was less than 1% of visits were conducted via telemedicine. And during the peak of the pandemic, although now we're in a new peak, but in late April, the percentage of outpatient visits that were conducted nationally via telemedicine was around 10 to 15%. And I think that will probably level off to somewhere in the five, seven, nine percent range on a going forward basis, and then I think it'll continue to increase from there. But I think the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, I also think that it's going to play out on a payer-by-payer basis. Medicare has significantly expanded the flexibilities for providing telehealth during the pandemic, and In order to sustain those changes, permanently requires new legislation, which is currently being discussed in state Medicaid programs. I think a lot of states are going to end up expanding coverage and reimbursement for telehealth. I think in the commercial space, it's going to be more of a mixed bag. I think some payers, especially those that are embracing value-based payment, will really see the value. And some states require commercial payers to cover telehealth at parity with in-person services. I think in other places more traditional payers are gonna have the concerns that they've always had about telemedicine about is it actually adding cost and is it adding utilization unnecessarily? And so maybe less likely to sustain coverage. But I think we'll probably wind up somewhere between where we were pre COVID and where we were sort of where we've been at the peak go on a going forward basis. So
0: we're accepting that this is Now, as you say, genies out of the bottle, we've got this new style of medicine that is coming onto mainstream healthcare. Have you heard of any groups that are thinking about the informational requirements of this new technology? Because right now we've got rather flat electronic medical records and we've got a video consultation going on. Have you heard of any people who are trying to do some smart integrations of those two And I don't mean just overlaying the video screen on top of your electronic medical record, but actually trying to adjust your electronic medical record so it fits the information requirements as you're going through a video consultation.
1: Uh, You know, I'm not aware of any, but it may just be that I haven't heard of them. I mean, I think for most electronic medical record companies, They really haven't had much of an incentive to develop that capability because, again, the volume historically has been incredibly low. I I think they've done the baseline, sort of the blocking Mm -hmm. and tackling, kind of making sure that you can access the video from the electronic medical record and having it all sort of in one screen instead of having to have two applications up. But that's sort of really fundamental. I think what you're suggesting is sort of the next generation of EHR, telehealth integration. And I I think we will see a lot of innovation in that space. And I think it's going to be interesting to see where the innovation comes from. There's the traditional sort of telemedicine companies. Because they're telemedicine companies, they're 100% focused on what the provider and consumer experience is in the telemedicine visit. The EHR companies sort of have a different business model and they've been playing nicer together over the past few years but I do think there's a lot of opportunity for really streamlining the way that what the provider experience is and I suspect that we'll see a lot more innovation in that area over the next few years.
0: You talked earlier about this being a major innovation in healthcare and I mean I definitely agree I mean this is almost like the development of anaesthetic gases at the beginning of the last century where the whole of surgery was just turned on its head but it was more than surgery it then developed into everything that's associated with the ability to do surgery and i think that we may see a lot of technologies develop out of this adoption of telemedicine telehealth that will surprise us going forward but those will add cost to the system and there is always a danger of the smart new toy actually being a necessary part of a healthcare system. Is there a way that you advise or help healthcare organizations to do that filtering
1: of what's shiny and bright in terms of its use in healthcare? We do a lot of that. And unfortunately, there is way too much shiny and bright and not nearly enough innovation that really improves outcomes and improves quality and lowers cost. And I think mm-hmm. that that's been the case in the digital health space, especially the consumer-facing digital health space, for a long time. And I think it sort of plagued the industry. I think what we've begun to see over the past year or two is a lot more rigor around the clinical and financial ROI and effectiveness of different types of interventions and and companies that are developing those interventions and. So a lot of what we do is helping big health systems and and payers sort through what's real and what's not. And and I I think that health systems and payers are also getting more sophisticated in, in their processes for doing that. I mean, one example, just to put a finer point on it, is the development of these digital formularies that have been developed by some of the largest PBMs in the country. And they're sort of taking the burden off of, Payers, namely, but also off of providers, in effect, because they're sort of referring patients into these programs of figuring out how to find the needle in the haystack, which is the company that really delivers high financial and clinical ROI. And so I think there has been a lot of innovation in that space in terms of trying to solve for that specific problem is what's high value and what's not. And I think these digital formularies are one example, and I think we'll continue to see those proliferate and grow. And I I think it will be differentiating for a health tech company to get coverage on those digital formularies, because that's going to be a much easier way to sales to payers than it is to go into each individual payer on their own. So that's sort of an area that we're spending a lot of time thinking about and focused on that I suspect will continue to be a key area of activity over the next few years. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's fascinating, that work with PBMs and it just speaks to the complexity of healthcare. And on the one side, we start the conversation with what is really, on the face of it, FaceTime, to the problem of getting access to healthcare. And yet, we've got all these complex areas around healthcare that then have to be brought into The video, everything else I'm meant to be doing during the consultation is still enabled through that technology. It's not going to be an easy solution, but it sounds like you are helping a lot of people address those issues.
1: Yeah, I'd like to think so. It's we're working on it. And again, we have the benefit of working on it from a variety of of different perspectives, working with providers and payers and health tech companies themselves. But to your point, a lot more working needs to be done. I think a lot of the foundational technology systems in the U.S. healthcare system have been built to enable billing and coding of services that have been provided, not necessarily around the patient. And I think that some of the newer health tech companies that are having some early success are really, really painfully focused on the consumer experience, whether that's the patient or the provider. And I think that the companies that have that level of customer focus will end up being very successful.
0: That's a positive note to end on, perhaps, and really just like to thank you again for your insights and your thoughts on what is an amazing transformation in healthcare that we're living through today. So any last comments that you would like to share with us?
1: Thanks, Martin, and and thanks for having me. You know, I think it's an unprecedented time in the healthcare system. I think we're on the cusp of a bunch of really exciting change related to digital health and telemedicine and potentially the continued shift to value. And I hope that there's been a lot of bad that's come out of the COVID pandemic, obviously, but I hope there are a couple of silver linings here and that we are able to achieve a healthcare system that's much more consumer-friendly when we come out of this pandemic than we have going in.
0: Thank you very much, Jared. Appreciate your time and stay well. And I look forward to speaking to you uh, in the near future.